You are listening to Love, Maine Radio, hosted by Dr. Lisa Belisle and recorded at the studios of Maine Magazine in Portland. Dr. Lisa Belisle is a writer and physician who practices family medicine and acupuncture in Thompson. Show summaries are available at lovemainradio.com. Portland Art Gallery is proud to sponsor Love, Maine Radio. Portland Art Gallery is the city's largest and is located in the heart of the Old Port at 154 Middle Street. The gallery focuses on exhibiting the work of contemporary Maine artists and hosts a series of monthly solo shows in its newly expanded space, including Ingen Jorgensen, Brenda Sirioni, Daniel Corey, Jill Hoy, and Dave Allen. For complete show details, please visit our website at artcollectormain.com. Love, Maine Radio is also brought to you by Aristel, a lingerie boutique on Exchange Street in Portland's Old Port, where every body is seen as a work of art and beauty is celebrated from the inside out. Shop with us in person or online at aristel.com. Tickets for Maine Live are available now. Maine Live is a day of inspiring talks and stories of grit by the business and creative people shaping the future of our state. Join host Dr. Lisa Belisle and 14 mesmerizing speakers who will inspire conversation and connection. This fifth Main Live is on Thursday, September 21st at USM's Hannaford Hall. Go to MainLiveEvent.com for more information and to purchase your tickets. Kristen Farnham leads the fundraising, marketing, and communication teams at Spurwink, a nonprofit statewide organization that provides behavioral health and education services for children, adults, and families. Thanks for coming in today. Thank you for having me in. Spurwing has been around for quite a while, hasn't it? Yeah, we're coming up on 60 years. So I'm not sure that people are as familiar with what Spurwing does. Can you give us a little background? Yeah, of course. So um, Spurwing for a long time sort of hid its light under a bushel and um, was doing great work in the community, but um, wasn't really talking about it as much. So I think that's a familiar feeling that um, not as many people knew about Spurwink or what it did, or maybe knew something, maybe had someone in their life who worked there, or maybe knew someone who was served by Spurwink. So um, yeah, so a lot of what we're doing now is trying to talk about the work more and shed some light on all the wonderful things that happen. so Spurwink started in 1960 with a home for eight boys out on Riverside Street. And we still have that building, actually. Um, so there's kids who still live in that building. And they were eight boys whose needs, developmental needs, couldn't be met in their own home or in their school. So they came and to Spurwink and um, lived with house parents. And that was the start. So really serving kids is, is the genesis of what um, Spurwink is all about and what it still does. And it's grown quite a lot since then. So now we have, um, we serve about 7,500 children and adults and families um, every year. And we have locations all around the state. Um, we have six different residential and school hubs. Um, So we have six special purpose private schools around the state. And then um, lots of residential facilities for kids who can't live at home. Um, And then for kids who've graduated out of the youth system, we have um, residences and day treatment programs for adults um, who um, also can't live at home, maybe can't live independently, will live in a group setting at a Spurwink home. 
And then out of that grew a lot of other um, ancillary but really connected programs, so a lot of outpatient clinical services for um, variety of diagnoses. We run the child abuse clinic in the state, and um, we run a treatment foster care program, so a lot of things that are connected to that germ of a program of working with kids whose needs really weren't met at home or in their, in their referring school district. Have you seen the numbers of um, children and families who have need of these services increase over the years? Yeah, absolutely they have. Um, the acuity of the kids that we serve is much higher now um, than it used to be. And there's a number of reasons for that. Um, we serve kids who, and I talk mostly about the kids because that's really the heart and the bulk of what we do. The kids that we serve come with a variety of different backgrounds and diagnoses. Um, some have autism um, in, you know, somewhere on the spectrum. Um, a lot have developmental disabilities. And, but really the common thread is kids who come with a trauma history of one form or another. And um, as a physician, you probably know about ACEs, adverse childhood, childhood experiences. And so the kids who are referred to us um, it may be because of um, behavior issues, but it really goes back to um, ACEs and you know, some sort of trauma in their, um, often in their family history. And um, so the SPURWINK model is really a therapeutic model of how to work with the kids and um, it's very individualized. We often have one-on-one -on -one, um, one-on-one matchup between a staff member and a student, either in school or in the residential setting, and getting them to a place where ideally they can maybe go back to their family um, or you know a place where they can be independent after they leave Spurwink. Um, the opiate crisis is a huge contributor um, to kids in need as well. That's obviously spiked more recently within the last couple of years in particular. Um, but all of those are contributing factors to both high need as well as the intensity and acuity of the kids that we serve. This wasn't your um, original path. Nope. You went to Middlebury and Boston College Law School and you actually worked as an attorney. I did. I did. Yeah. So you've made this big change, although you've always had an interest in nonprofits and educational organizations. Yeah. Tell me a little bit about that. Yeah, it's definitely a lesson in, um, in being patient with life and seeing where the different threads of your life will come together. And I feel really so fortunate to be at Spurwink because I feel it sort of brings together lots of parts of my life. Um, I really feel like I have the best nonprofit job in Maine. <laughs> and um, and, be, and for me personally, it's a great organization. It has great leadership. I'm really privileged to serve with, serve with an amazing team of people on our senior leadership team. Um, and then, you know, the work is really important. It's really serving, in my view, the people who, um, who our community has kind of left behind in some ways and really addressing their needs and helping them get to a place where they can lead the best life that they can lead and be as independent as they can, be contributing to their community and living independently. Um, and um, 
so for me on the, my professional side, it sort of weaves together a lot of things that I've done. So um, I have a background in uh, marketing and fundraising from working with a variety of nonprofits. I've worked in some educational institutions, and so we're a school, you know, we run schools, and so that plays into the work that we do. And, um, you know, occasionally my legal background will come in handy either. Um, I mean, we obviously have a very capable HR staff, but we also, as a senior leadership team, will sit around the table and talk about issues that impact the whole organization. So, for example, um, workforce development or um, the minimum wage issue that has just come up in Maine. You know, we all contribute to discussions around those topics that affect the whole agency. And um, um, in the, the fundraising side of my work, I do a fair amount of tax work and estate planning, working with donors. Um, so those are all different threads of my life, that professional life that sort of come together. Um, so I feel really fortunate to find this place that I love working with people who do incredible work and sort of taps into lots of different um, parts of my skill set, I hope. So most of what you just described is kind of in one area, but I'm still kind of intrigued by this going to law school and becoming an attorney. Yep. Yeah. So how, how did just, I'm just out of interest because people who listen to the show are often kind of similar where they've done one thing and right. then something switched for them and they said, oh, I need to go do this. This right. is more true to who I am. Right. Yeah, sure. That's a fair, fair point. So, um, so I went to law school um, thinking I was going to do public interest law. So that was my motivation. Um, so in the summers I worked um, in Boston, there were great opportunities. So I worked one summer in a domestic violence unit of the Norfolk County District Attorney's Office that was doing really groundbreaking work. This is quite a few years ago. <laughs> so kind of groundbreaking work in the domestic violence arena. Um, things like bringing a case forward without the victim, things that sound sort of commonplace now and practices now in the prosecutor's office, but it was at the time pretty groundbreaking, doing a lot of education with police forces and other um, referring um, entities. So that was really, to me, important and meaningful work. And another summer I worked in a child protection unit of, a, of the Department of, our, the um, Massachusetts equivalent of our Department of Health and Human Services in Maine. It's called DSS, Department of Social Services in Massachusetts. So that was also really, hard but um, meaningful work in terms of child protective work. And so I graduated and I clerked for a year for a federal judge, which is kind of a common thing to do after law school, and um, had some great trial experience down in Providence. And then, um, then was looking for my first position and also had a bunch of loans to pay off. <laughs> so um, anyway, my husband and I looked um, to we kind of looked outside of Boston where we were living at the time and so I got a great job at um, one of the firms in town Veraldena and you know great group of people and um, helped me pay off my loans um, and meet that commitment and um, and I guess I I um, moved from that towards you know kind of gravitated back more towards nonprofit work went to work for one ultimately after a few years at Veraldena working with a great team of people we moved um, to Bowdoin College which was one of our clients you know great place as you know 
and um, and so they are sort of wove a little bit back and forth between private practice and nonprofit work, but um, being in the in the nonprofit sphere is really where my heart is. Well, it's a very practical thing. I mean, this is there is there are educational loans, and yeah. you, know, you have to find some way of doing it. What I think is really remarkable is the fact that some people can get caught up in going down a path because it looks a certain way financially, and kind of that's not really where they ever intended to go. Mm. But but you you were very clear. It seems that this is where you wanted to come back to. Oh, um, there were lots of uncertain moments along the way. Don't <laughs> I don't want to create a false impression. Um, but I guess that's the be patient lesson, you know, to sort of keep waiting and finding the threads that come together and um, and make more sense ultimately. And I mean, the great thing about um, you know, I still keep up with a lot of my friends that I practice with, and some of whom are still you know, practicing law in a law firm setting, some of whom aren't. And, um, you know, I think that there's a lot of um, qualities that you get from legal practice that are really valuable in other settings. You know, no task is too boring (laughs) after you've, you know, been an associate attorney at a law firm and you're not afraid of long hours or hard work. Um, You're okay with hierarchy. You know, there's lots of things that you get from that setting that, you know, make other settings pretty appealing after that. Um, And there's also an intellectual rigor to it um, that's really, you know, engaging and interesting. And working at a place um, like Veraldena, one of the things I loved about being there, I was there in, I guess, like the late 90s, was, you know, they're a statewide firm. So you kind of, I I was new to Maine. We had, I hadn't lived here before, but working with that firm, doing good work for lots of main companies, primarily businesses, and but all over the state. So I just learned all about Maine um, and sort of dove in that way. Um, so that for me was like just a wonderful introduction to Maine and what's going on in the Maine economy and how Maine operates. So I feel really lucky that I landed in that place. I'm thinking as you're talking about the number of attorneys that I've interviewed that have gone back into the nonprofit world. Mm-hmm. I was thinking about um, the Casco Bay keeper from Friends of Casco Bay. Oh, Ivy. Ivy Franyoka. Yeah. And um, that's just one example. I believe the head of Good Shepherd Food Bank maybe may have been an attorney. I could be uh-huh. wrong about this. So if you're uh-huh. listening and I'm wrong, then I apologize. Right. But then there was another person who was a main live speaker who now does conservation work. So it seems as if oh, yeah. you know having this sort of background really can be very useful. Right. Ultimately. Right. Tell me about your ability to work with a population that can be very, um, I don't want to say challenging, it's more that there is a very emotional component to some of these families' stories. I mean, I have some of these families as my patients, Mm -hmm. and they will come in, and I am so struck by the fact that um, there's a significant amount of misfortune um, being born into a bad situation. there's there's stuff that is that happens that, that you just you can't believe actually happens in this day and age and that mm. people can be walking around and still living these lives mm. these, these traumatic circumstances abuse neglect or even just being born to an opiate addicted mother yeah what is that like on a day-to-day basis to be working with that population yeah well I have to, um, 
I think it's incredibly important work. I think a lot of people who come from a background of poverty, um, who've had really hard things happen in their life, who have mental health challenges, we used to not talk about it or at best and lock them up at worst. And so I think the fact that they can be respected and given opportunities to um, to move beyond their history, I think is huge, um, both you know, in Maine and nationally, that we have a different dialogue around mental health issues and what that means. And I think, um, so I want to be clear, I, I don't do the hard work at Sproink. You know, we have clinicians who are trained and they work with the clients and the people, you know, legions of people who work day to day with the clients. And, you know, I do the easy part, which is talk about their work promote their work, try to build brand awareness around Spurwink in terms of, and bring in more supporters, whether that's new clients, donors, um, referrers, um, foundation support, you know, those are all, you know, that's the easy part. You know, the people who work with the clients, that can be the daily hard part. But they also are so dedicated to it and they're really, um, inspiring to be around because they're so committed to the person and to helping each person you know address their history and um, and move po forward in a positive way um, we use a model that's based out of Cornell University called the care model um, I'm not gonna even pretend that I know what the acronym care stands for but um, it's it's a therapeutic model that is really about valuing each person and finding a path for them and giving them unconditional positive regard. And so that's the work that's really done on a daily basis with the clients. And each therapeutic plan for each client is different. Um, and, you know, because each one comes with a different past. Um, they work with families when it's appropriate, um, to, you know, sort of bring that family forward. And um, so they just do incredible work. There's a, um, one example is we have a client named Samantha, and I can share her name because she gave us, she and her foster parents gave us permission to make a video about her. That's on our website. And Samantha had been in, she was 13, and she had been in 13 different homes. And so, you know, you can just let your mind go about how is that possible? You know, you think about your own family and your own children. And she finally found a place at Spurwink where she grew to trust her teachers who did an incredible job in our Lewiston school with her. And then she was living with a couple in a therapeutic couple model that we had been working with in a home. It's kind of like a foster family. And um, she was going to have to move out of that placement and her foster parents who had worked at um, Spurwink changed their jobs and changed their whole career trajectory so that they could um, officially foster her and she could become a part of their family. So that's just, you know, the above and beyond story of people's dedication and how her, her life has really taken a different trajectory. Um, she's doing well in school. She goes to after-school activities and gymnastics and things at um, Boys and Girls Club in Lewiston. And um, it was really a, pa a different path for her 
now than there was before. Um, so that kind of work is, you know, to me, just so incredible and really inspiring. And um, so my job is just to talk about it and to, to help to share that work and support it and tell the story. And, um, and to really, our goal overall is to crack open people's view of people with mental health challenges or with a difficult past and really help to redefine what success looks like. You know, for everyone, it's not Ivy League, being a lawyer, you know, being a doctor. Sometimes it's going to your job and showing up or having your own apartment. And, you know, can we help people to um, understand that and to help create that opportunity for people? Tell me about the work that Spurwing is doing with um, new Mainers, with people who have come to our state um, from other places and might be having similar challenges to people who have lived in our state for many years. Right. Um, this has become an increasingly important issue that all of us are working with. Yeah. We, um, we have a ton of intersection with new Mainers right now on a couple of different fronts, which is really pretty cool and exciting. So. Um, on, on the client side, we're working more and more with new Mainers. Um, I mean, they often come with a lot of mental health challenges and um, a lot of trauma history, you know, that we don't have to go into detail about how that could be. You know, lots of relocation, you know, lo family loss, um, violence. And um, so we work more and more um, on the client side. We have school groups, um, we have public school counselors embedded in um, a huge variety of schools throughout the state, so they do school groups. And then we just got a um, really significant federal grant um, to fund a program called SHIFA, which we work in consultation with um, children, Boston Children's Hospital. And that program is doing, um, implementing a pro um, a therapy called trauma systems therapy for refugees and so it's really exciting it's Spurwing's first federal grant and it's over a five-year period and um, so what we're doing there is rolling out um, a program first in Lewiston Auburn where there's a big refugee population then in Biddeford Saco and then in Portland and Westbrook and so it's in three stages and it works with um, kids and with families using cultural brokers. Um, there's a lot of stigma against mental health counseling in the ref refugee community, and so this program really works with people in the community to open those doors and to work with families, and in particular with, um, with kids and their families. So that's really exciting work. Um, that's specifically, um, and there's a woman named Sarah Patton who's leading that program, and she's a PhD, and she's just doing phenomenal work in that area with her team. And um, and then on the employer side, we're finding that we're employing more and more um, recent immigrants. So we have about um, we have more than 900 employees throughout the state. So we're a pretty sizable employer, and. Um, in, we estimate that we about 10% of our workforce now are recent immigrants. And then in our adult program, there's about 30%. So that's all, you know, friends and family, <laughs> you know, refer your friends and family to come. And um, so that 
is a great opportunity for Spurwank um, because as you know, probably from talking to lots of folks, workforce development and recruitment and retention of employees is a huge issue across the state and Spurwank is no exception to that. That's a huge issue that we focus on as leadership and focus on throughout the agency all the time. And so to find a population where people are referring their friends to come because it's a positive work experience is really great. And it does present different challenges though that we're conscious of and that we're working on as an employer. So um, a recent immigrant might come with language barriers. Um, There's some cultural norms that they might not be familiar with. Um, They have some different needs in terms of um, wanting to take different holidays. Um, When they go on vacation, they might go back to their country of origin for a either a holiday or a wedding celebration. So those are some different needs than the typical main employee might have. Um, We also are really conscious of there's, some of our jobs have certain educational requirements and so their degrees, if they have them from their um, country of origin might not translate very well to American standards. So we work with them to sort of help manage that and figure that out. And then we're also really conscious of making sure that those employees have opportunities for growth and development, that they're able to move through um, you know, a supervisory system and sort of move um, to positions of more responsibility in the agency. So there's a lot of layers to that, but um, we feel really lucky to be part of that dialogue and be able to participate in that because they're great employees. They're really hardworking as a group empathetic they're sort of unfazed by some of the things that our clients come with because they've seen a lot in their own lives so they're um they're in a lot of ways really ideal employees for a lot of the work that we do so yeah so it's pretty it's on both of those fronts it's pretty exciting to be a part of that because it's you know obviously a huge discussion point in the state and um so we're looking for more and more ways to be a part of that dialogue about supporting that community in all the ways and integrating them in a really um, positive and effective way. You referenced the uh, stigma around um, counseling therapy for mental illness within the refugee and immigrant population. This is a stigma that has existed within arguably, I don't know, the traditional Mainers population. Sure for really as long as I can remember, I'm sure from beyond that. How does Berwing work with that stigma? How does how are you working to change the way that we view uh, mental and emotional issues that people might have that are holding them back? Yeah. Well, I think the most important work is done with the clients, you know, every day helping people um, not feel shame about their history, but to really work through it and um, and get to a more positive place in their life. So that I think is, you know, definitely um, the most important work that happens. And then in our efforts, you know, on sort of the marketing and communication side, um, we view it as a responsibility to talk about it, to talk about hard things and to um, make it seem like it's not the other, you know, to help people relate to it and um, tell people's story. Um, we just had a um, stewardship lunch where we brought in a bunch of donors and funders and people who had been supportive of Spurwink. And um, 
So we had some of our leadership speak and our program directors, but really it was the two kids, you know, the teenagers that we, um, they were so brave and they told their story to this group of people that they didn't know. And the, um, our donors and supporters were so moved by that. And so it's, you know, those are kids trying to make their way in the world and do the best, best that they can, you know, with the tools that they were given and the supports that Spurwink is able to offer. And so, um, you know, I think when people can see person to person, it breaks down a lot of the barriers and stereotypes. So we just try to find ways, you know, it's hard. We try to find ways to connect people with the, the clients and the work that's done. It's not always easy because we can't accept a lot of volunteers. You know, some of our programs aren't really suited to that. But, um, you know, try to find ways. We're always looking at, you know, we have pretty active social media presence, trying to tell stories. Um, through that, through video, um, newsletters, some events, you know, trying to connect people with people with people because that's where, you know, people are understood more and barriers are broken down. I've been speaking with Kristen Farnham, who leads the fundraising, marketing, and communication teams at Spurwink, a nonprofit statewide organization that provides behavioral health and education services for children, adults, and families. Thank you for the important work that you're doing and for taking the time to talk to me today. Oh, thanks so much for the opportunity. Love, Maine Radio is brought to you by Maine Magazine, Aristel, Portland Art Gallery, and Art Collector Maine. Audio production and original music are by Spencer Albee. Our editorial producers are Paul Koenig and Brittany Cost. Our assistant producer is Shelby Wasik. Our community development manager is Casey Lovejoy. And our executive producers are Kevin Thomas, Rebecca Falzano, and Dr. Lisa Belisle. For more information on our production team, Maine Magazine, or any of the guests featured here today, please visit us at lovemainradio.com.